Hey, this is The Mouth Off with Kion Wolf, storytelling for the Mark Twain House and Museum. I'm Kion Wolf. Our first story is from Betsy Rose. She's worked in childcare for over 35 years, which she credits with keeping her young and with a sense of humor. She's belonged to the Connecticut Storytelling Association and a local storytelling group, Hither and Yon. Here's Betsy's story from June of 2015, and the theme was On Vacation. My vacation story is from some time ago. My girlfriend, Barbara, uh, had asked about going a river rafting trip in West Virginia. So uh, that's what this is about. Now, back then, I was much larger than I am now. Uh, I was quite ample. I was what the fashion uh, industry refers to as queen-sized. While most of the time I had quite a bit of amplitude, um, sometimes that being queen-sized can be difficult, especially in the princess-perfect fashion world we all live in. But that being said, uh, I pretty much was ready to try anything. So when Barbara called me and said, let's go river rafting down in West Virginia, I gave her a resounding qualified yes. Let me check by calling them first to make sure this would be suitable. So I call the outfitters. And the young woman who answers is extremely gracious. Oh, yes, ma'am, no problem at all. You're queen size, that's fine. We have life jackets to fit up to size 50. And we usually go down the river in what we call, it's an inflatable kayak. We call it a ducky. But you can go on the gear boat if you want. That's fine, too. So we'd love to have you. So I got off the phone, called Barb, and said, pack the car. We're going to go. So we drive down to West Virginia. We get to the outfitter, and we introduce ourselves. We meet our guides, Shannon and Eric, and we start the whole process. First, the safety. We need to get those life jackets on. So I go to the bin, marked XXXL, and sure enough, find that size 50 life jacket and put it on, and it barely snaps, but it does snap around me. I can't breathe very well (laughs) because the makers of this life jacket clearly had in mind when they made it a very tall man and I'm neither. So, shall we say the superstructure was somewhat compressed. (laughs) There was no deep breathing to be had that trip. Shallow breaths. But more importantly, I'm encased in this very stiff foam from under my chin to my hips, and I can't bend at all. I can't even see my feet. I'm assuming they're down there somewhere, but there's no moving. So the first little inklings of doubt creep into my mind, the first little misgivings that maybe this wasn't the best of ideas. But I haven't even gotten on the river yet, so I'm not going to be a party pooper. So the next step is down to the water we go, and you get in your kayak. I get in my kayak, and we learn how to paddle. And we're given the instructions that we're going to paddle downstream for approximately 10 minutes. 
and then we will shoot our first rapid. The first white water will be under a bridge. We'll go through the rapid, and then we will all regroup on the left bank. Okay. The group takes off. I bring up the rear of the flock, paddling my little ducky. And the second problem becomes fairly quickly apparent to me because the kayaks are long and I have short legs. So the front of my legs, where you would normally brace against the front of the kayak, my legs don't reach that. So I have no way to brace myself and support my back. And of course, I am encased in the rigid foam from neck to waist. So I can't even lean over to relieve any of the growing pressure on my back. And now I'm thinking, uh-oh. Well, my muscles start to complain. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a body that talks to me regularly. We have, we have extensive conversations. And perhaps some of you do also. Maybe the bladder that wakes you up at 2 a.m. with a fairly urgent, get up and go. Or maybe the knees that as you jump out of bed in the morning, say something to you like, what were you thinking on the tennis courts yesterday? Well, my body and I converse regularly. And my back says, what exactly are you doing? This is not pleasant. Stop this. Well, I'm busy paddling. Oh, oh, we'll stop in a little while. We just have to get through the first rapid. My back responds. No, 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 no. I think we should stop now. We don't like this. We're getting tired. I say, no, no. We have to get first through the first rapid. I want to forestall all-out rebellion, but I can't stop. My back says, too bad. Do it without us. We quit. At that, my back gives out completely, and I fall over backwards, flat on my back, in the rubber ducky, my paddle up, and I'm in the white water. And the only thing I can see is the underside of the bridge as I shoot through the rapid. Now, I do what any sane person would do in this situation. I take a shallow breath and start yelling, help, help. Well, from the left side of the river, I hear the dulcet tones of my guide, Shannon. We can't help you. <laughs> Roll out of the ducky and come to shore. Now, these are not exactly the words I had hoped to hear. And I'm really questioning the wisdom of getting out of the ducky. But I don't have a lot of options. So sure enough, I roll out of the ducky, realize I'm in knee-deep water, stand up, <laughs> and rather sheepishly tow the ducky to shore. So at that point, I'm embarrassed, and I apologize Shannon's the soul of graciousness. No, no, no. You can ride down in the gear boat. It'd be just fine. That's what I did that day. But there's three more days. 
Well, that night we spend on the riverbanks, and the next morning, Shannon comes to me and says, Betsy, come down to the river. So I go with him to the river, and there on the bank is the gear boat. This time, Eric's lawn chair is mounted in the front of the gear boat. My deflated ducky is there providing a footrest for me. <laughs> in the back of the gear boat is an umbrella in case the sun becomes too much. <laughs> and Shannon smiles and says to me, Cleopatra, your barge awaits. <laughs> no. It's amazing what a few small words can do to give you a new perspective. Because from that point on, on that river, I did not raft it as a woman who was queen-sized. Oh no. I went down the new river as a queen. <laughs> Thanks, Queen Betsy Rose. Our next storyteller is Brian Jones. I wanted to release this story now to honor his life. Brian died at his home in Glastonbury on July 4, 2019. Brian was Connecticut State archaeologist and associated with the Department of Anthropology at UConn. He was particularly interested in studying the peopling of the New World and stone tool analysis. And he'd recently made the archaeology of 17th century Connecticut one of his top priorities. His wife, Margaret, wrote me to add this. Brian's telling of this story reveals so much about him. He was both a scientist and a spiritual person, and those seemingly contradictory sides of him are so evident here. He was also incredibly brilliant, but down to earth at the same time. Knowing him made me a better person. Now that he's gone, I follow his path by trying to be more patient, more curious, more aware of the natural world, and more conscious of the beauty in all living things. I hope that anyone hearing this story can take away that same sense of wonder and connection with other living things. Here's Brian's story from November of 2015. The theme was You Animal, stories about encounters with beasts, both foreign and domestic. It was a cold, beautiful December morning back in 2002. I was out in the woods with Kevin McBride, the director of research at the Mashantucket Pequot Museum, and the two of us were out that day to wrap up what had been two years of archaeological work on the Lake of Isles Boy Scout camp. Some of you guys may remember that. The tribe had purchased this property and was already in the process of converting it into two 18-hole golf courses. Now, it was a beautiful morning, but it was not a quiet morning. We had a large excavator right next to us that was there to help us with the work we needed to do. And not far away in the distance, there were these massive tree-clearing machines going at work, clearing out these fairways. And these aren't like, you know, guys running around with chainsaws. These were machines that normal people never see. They're the size of 18-wheel trucks. And the one in particular that was the most frightening had these giant uh, shearing blades in the front that could rip through the base of a 36-inch oak tree at one time. And when that blade cut the oak tree, it would create this kind of horrible metallic squeal. And you couldn't help but think that those 
trees were screaming in agony. Now, somewhere beyond the tree-clearing monsters, there were these giant earth-moving creatures. And these were also like oversized things you don't see at construction sites, like 20 feet tall with ladders to climb up to get into the cockpits. So there was a lot going on out at the Boy Scout camp that day. Now, we were there to investigate a well. We had worked on a site that was abandoned around the time of the Revolutionary War, and we still had it you know, this is the one last thing we had to do was open up the well. And to do that, we were going to use the excavator. We're going to kind of cut the thing in half, have a look inside, and uh, see if there might be something in the bottom. You know, we wanted to see partly scientifically maybe how it was built, those things. But in truth, we were kind of curious what was at the bottom. When archaeologists sit around uh, fires at night, they tell stories about widows in the 18th century whose old husbands have passed away, and they throw away their entire table sets. And that's what we were waiting for. So we had the excavator working, and his goal was to dig about half of this well out. So he starts digging and digging. And uh, immediately we saw there was a lot of rock rubble coming out of this area, and it didn't make a lot of sense at first. But he got down about 10 feet, and we could see that he was exposing slowly a really giant kind of funnel-shaped pit we started to realize that this was kind of interesting. We'd never seen this before. So it wasn't just a well shaft that had been built up or straight down into the earth. Uh, these farmers had dug a giant hole. This kind of made sense because the ground out there is very, very stony, and it might be hard to just sink a shaft straight down. So they dug this huge hole, got into the bottom, and built this shaft up slowly and packed it around with kind of loose stones. Now, we could tell from the shape of this pit that we were getting kind of near the bottom. The funnel was getting narrower, so we were getting excited. We had our manly hard hats on. We're doing manly archaeology with giant machines next to us. We were feeling pretty good about this ourselves, and we were getting close to the bottom, and who knows what kind of widow's treasures might be hidden. So finally, this excavator makes this big scoop, and when he lifts up the bucket, water starts pouring out. And we knew we were there. We were at the bottom of the well. So I'm getting pretty excited. I kind of walk around, and the excavator operator knows we want to look at this stuff. So he takes a clean area. And by the way, it had snowed the night before, and it was a nice fresh coat of white snow over everything. He kind of emptied it out over the ground so I could take a look. And as he's emptying the bucket, rock rubble and sand and water pours out. And amongst that, I see a weird black root. And I thought that was odd because we hadn't seen any roots yet. And I walk over to the rubber, rubble pile, and I, I get closer, and I realize it's a big black snake. I mean, a really big black snake. And um, I went up to it, and uh, kind of carefully, I, I picked it up to see if I could help it. But it was already, it was already dead. It had been crushed by the, the rock and rubble. And I felt terrible. I, as a kid, I had snakes as pets. I liked snakes. So I picked it up, and I brought it over and put it down in the snow beside me. And it was bleeding a little on the snow. And I found myself sort of just staring at it. And over my shoulder, though, I heard Kevin's voice say, Brian, um, I think you should come over and look at this. And I tore myself away from the snake and went over to where Kevin was at the pit. And I looked down, and it took a while for my eyes to adjust to the darkness because I'd been staring at the bright snow. And I eventually made out the water at the bottom of the well, and inside something was swimming around in a circle. And it looked like an eel, and I kind of realized eventually it was a snake. And then as my eyes adjusted, I saw movement on the sides of the pit we'd exposed, and I realized there was little snake heads coming out from all the cracks and crevices. And this was a little disturbing. 
But I turned to Kevin and I said, we've got to do something. And Kevin was still in a rational frame of mind, and he looked at me like I was totally insane. But then I repeated, I said, Kevin, we've, we've got to get them out. I think it slowly occurred to Kevin, uh, the way it had occurred to me, that the problem was not so much that we'd torn open their winter den and exposed them to the cold. We might have maybe been able to fix that problem by slowly putting the rocks back in and leaving them alone. The problem was that after these tree-clearing monsters cut down this area, those earth-moving demons were going to come in and reshape the entire landscape. There was not going to be anything alive in the ground after they passed through. And then Kevin did the bravest thing I've ever known him to do. He turned to me and said, OK, I'll get in the bucket. And the operator will drop me down, and I'll, I'll get, try to get the snakes out of the wall, and I'll, I'll give them to you. I'll pass them up. <laughs> and I protested. I said, Kevin, I'll, I'll do it. I was like the younger guy. I'm like, I, I, let me do it. He said, no. I think he was feeling a little fatherly and protective. He said, I'll do it. Um, if I was Dan Rather, I would have been in the bucket, right? So anyway, Kevin got in the bucket. We convinced the operator that this wasn't dangerous and stupid and against all the OSHA regulations, right? And he, <laughs> he let Kevin down into, into the pit. And Kevin proceeded to kind of coax a snake out of the wall. And the snakes weren't really happy about this. They were kind of opening their jaws and snapping slowly because they were cold and writhing around. But Kevin, eventually Kevin got a snake out and he, uh, the, the operator lifted him up and he handed me the snake and I put the snake in a big black plastic bag that I had. And that bag was supposed to be for all those archaeological treasures we were going to find. But I put the snake in and we repeated this operation for a while. Kevin would go down in the bucket, he would wrestle a snake from the wall and bring it up to me and I'd put it in the bag. And to be honest, I don't really know how long this lasted, because I think I've blocked a lot of this from my mind. But after a while, I realized I was holding on to a very heavy bag of snakes. <laughs> and it was kind of like a sack of potatoes, but it was moving a little. And eventually, Kevin said, I don't see any more. And he came out. And then I was curious. So I opened the bag, and I looked inside. And I saw sort of this black mass of writhing snake bodies. And to this day, I really, really wish I'd never looked in the bag. <laughs> so the story, it has a really good ending for the snakes. We gave them to a nature center, and a very nice lady took care of them all winter. And in the spring, she let them go, and I think they went on to live happy, snaky lives. But for Kevin and me, it was a little different. I don't think we were ever quite the same. I think our souls were kind of damaged that day. Because when you're standing there in the cold, and the oak trees are screaming behind you, and you look down and you see a black serpent bleeding on the white snow, and you walk over to the pit, and you see the snakes writhing from the walls, and one swimming in circles at the bottom. You're like in the Medusa's skull looking out, and a little trap door opens in the bottom of that skull, and you fall into your own reptilian brainstem, into this nightmarish Jungian world that is going to haunt you for the rest of your life. Thank you. That was Brian Jones, Connecticut state archaeologist, loving friend, husband, and father, mentor, student, helper, interpreter, traveler 
drummer, martial artist, philosopher, and outstanding storyteller. As Mark Twain said, I like a good story well told. That's the reason I'm sometimes forced to tell them myself. The Mouth Off is hosted and produced by me, Kyone Wolf, with help from Jennifer LaRue. Learn about my other shows at kionewolf.com, on Twitter and Instagram at kionewolf, and on Facebook at Wolf Productions. Tell your story at one of our live shows. Dates, themes, tickets, and swag are at marktwainhouse.org slash mouthoff. At that site, you'll also see other cool stuff the Twain House has going on, in addition to funny and fascinating house tours. Twain's tradition of storytelling continues with writing classes and workshops, chances to write in Mark Twain's library, and the popular Mark My Words series, where authors come from around the world to talk about how current issues are colliding with their work. Follow the Twain House on Facebook and sign up for the newsletter at marktwainhouse.org. Imagine the story you'll tell about being a sponsor for the Mouth Off podcast. For rates, email mouthoffhartford at gmail.com. Till next time, whatever happens, make it a good story. Bye.